Did you smoke some weed? I was offered plenty, but uh, as we all know, that's not a good idea for for the health and safety of. Okay, mankind. so you're just lying to your listeners. Why would you do that? This, you're breaking the bond of trust, Matt. No, I establish I, it. No, I, I I had to get up at five in the morning and drive to Boston, which is a disgusting city, as you well know. Oh my life, god! Uh, to fly out to Los Angeles. So. All right, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna start this because it's at the tail end of the podcast, and I don't think anyone will listen to it. We're breaking say, land speed. We're breaking land speed. Record. I want to say that you know, um, and not long ago, I ate mushrooms, and I haven't eaten mushrooms in a long time. So I'm just gonna tell everyone that in the podcast. And you know what? It was super fun. Yeah. It was like I'm an old man but it was it was it was a good time so i think you should how admit, old are you michael I, you know i'm i just <laughs> 20 27 i don't know 27 28 yeah. something around that i'm a virgo that's what i, I know that yeah. but uh -huh. that stays the same no matter how wrinkly you get yeah, yeah. We, we, we know of new methods of attack the trojan horse the fifth column, 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 column. greetings Welcome back to another installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. I am Camille Foster of uh, an outfit called Freethink Media. We make videos and, and we do various other things. Uh, this is our 14th episode, I believe. Uh, and I am delighted to be joined again by my co-conspirators, uh, Michael Moynihan of Vice News and a, a, a contributor at the Daily Beast. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, we'll see like what that. happens. Okay. We'll see how this goes. And uh, Matt Welch, who uh, is now the editor-at-large at Reason Magazine. It's not editor true. at large. That means they don't work there anymore? <laughs> That's not true. They're still, they're still selling him his checks. That's fine. And, uh, and he still has his red stapler. And, uh, and we are joined oh. uh, remotely, virtually, by, uh, by a wonderful guest today. Uh, a woman by the name of Virginia Postrel. Miss Postrel, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, you can call me Virginia. Everyone does. Thank you. <laughs> you can also, you can, you can also call her the former editor of Reason Magazine. Well, that would have been a good pivot. I was actually Camille, from Matt. And I was actually now. editor at large for a brief ah, period. Is that as right? Well. Were you the first editor at large at Reason Magazine? I couldn't tell you. I don't think. So. I mean, I think so, but I don't know for sure. What did yeah. you do during that time as editor at large <laughs> so we can set some expectations for Matt Wells? That's a good. That <laughs> um, is actually. Very I essentially good. wrote for other people and and, <laughs> and put Reason's name on the. And, out in the world. Yeah, that's what that's what Matt's been doing for about three years. <laughs> Again, and, and and today and today you continue to write at, at various places. Bloomberg uh, like View, Bloomberg View, uh, and we will talk a little bit about your uh, your recent column there. Uh, but you also have a a, a number of books out at number the moment. Of, number of great books. Very yes. very wonderful books. The Power of Glamour, uh, the Future and Its Enemies, and the Substance of Style. Uh, mm -hmm. The Substance of Style, which I, I've not read as of yet. And I plan to, I plan to. Yes. Have. And I want everyone to know that it's currently on sale for Kindle for 99 cents. So oh, you can't afford not to buy it. God. And Camille Technology. even like reads on those things too. Technology. Yeah. Yes, I do. I only, I only read books on Kindle. I will. I can't buy it buy during the show. I'm trying to, to, to sort of steer the ship in some way, shape or form. I don't have as many insightful things to say as you people directly into an um, iceberg. And by you people, you know exactly what I mean by that. <laughs> um, I, I should say, well, actually, no, I'm not going to say anything. We're going to get right to it because a lot Do happened it. since the last time we were a here. Lot, we mentioned yeah. Brexit yeah. at the front end of last show and a then steered mention. clear of it because at that point, the situation had not yet solidified. Uh, there were all sorts of great expectations, intense fears. Uh, as of this recording, we are a few days removed from the uh, cataclysm, the devastating catastrophe uh, <laughs> of Brexit. Um, and by the slimmest of margins, the pro-Brexit Leave Coalition prevailed 
in a non-binding referendum that oh, may yeah. or may not signal the eventual withdrawal in perhaps two years or so of the United Kingdom from the European Union. So obviously, this is a very urgent matter and a matter of great concern, and we should discuss it. Is he being sarcastic? I, I don't I, know. I'm, a, I'm being a little sarcastic <laughs> because honestly, for me, like the most, the, the most uh, shocking thing and surprising thing that happened to me uh, is that suddenly every person I knew became on an expert Facebook and on, Twitter on the European Union, was yeah. an expert on foreign policy sure. and monetary sure. policy. Of course. And happens all the time. It's astonishing. I, like my aunts, yeah. my, my, not my grandmother because she very rarely uses uh, a Facebook, but every single one of my former uh, high school and college comrades now an expert. I think that I tweeted this, and I think it, would, it was retweeted a couple of hundred times. And I said something the same thing. Is I didn't. The tweet was simply, I didn't know so many of my old college friends knew so much about the European <laughs> Union. And it's amazing because everyone's expressing their shock and horror at something that they had previously not heard of. And the other thing about this was that apparently I was the only one that noticed that polls were really tight. <laughs> And everyone's just I'm unbelievably shocked about what's, what's going on here. Well, no, polls have been pretty tight for. for I mean, for they some were within the 52 well, to 48 band, right? Yeah. I was in I was in the UK from the 5th to the 15th of June. Oh wow! And um, had, I I did not conduct man in the street interviews, so this is not based on my wonderful cab driver in Burnley who loves the United States because everything is on the biggest stage. I judging from the where the uh, Burnley vote meant he probably voted for Brexit, but I didn't do Megan McArdle style talking to people interviews. I just, yeah. but I did catch TV and I did read the British newspapers. And I have to say this, this vote does not surprise me at all. I mean, it was going to be close and there's often an argument when things are close that people go for the status quo, but it was very clear that there was this, Nice, very Britishly contained panic among <laughs> the, the talking heads. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't see how I'm the only person to pick that up. Now, it I mean, seemed like they were very... <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. And it's it's a reflection of the fact that I, I was watching Sky News uh, live uh, and watching the re results come in because I've been following the story for some time. And I, I loved the fact that right when I turned it on, Islington came in, which is, you know, it would be like Williamsburg or something um, or, you know. Yeah, all I know is there's lots of Airbnbs uh, in Islington. In Islington, yes, because it's all journalists from the BBC <laughs> renting them out. And I can't remember the number, but it was like 80 percent remain. It was like a Syrian election, you know, 98 percent for Bashar al-Assad. It was like 80 percent like, remain. And then, of course, the coverage after that in seeing in that kind of Walter Cronkite taking his glasses off, talking about the war in Vietnam being lost, the David Dimbleby, all these guys, they're sort of ashen faces and saying, what have we done? And it's like, well, I mean, rather, rather than ask that, I mean, you know, why don't you talk to some voters and ask them why they're doing this and why they're pulling the lever for this? So what ends up happening is the next couple of days, uh, Facebook is, is fantastic for this. If you have friends like mine and yours and Camille's and I'm sure Virginia's too, where the, the the day of recriminations where everyone uh, that I knew in, in England was saying everybody who voted uh, to leave is a racist knuckle dragging yob clearly and and I'm like you know this is essentially what these people are angry angry about this is how you view the 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 uh, um, leave voters I mean I think leave is a terrible decision I think it's a, a stupid decision but 
you know, I kind of understand why people would go. You know, and look, by the way, the other thing about the European Union is the European Union sh shoots itself in the foot. I mean, there's a lot of unelected, you know, uh, people named Van Rompuy who just are <laughs> assigned by some Dutch Privy Council and they become the non-elected representatives. But no one in the European Union had ever, I mean, if you watch European Parliament, it's incredibly funny to watch. There'd been no attempts ever to sort of rein the European Union in, to, to contain it, you know, the, the, the sort of famous regulations about the curve on a banana and the rest of it, or, you know, address any of the problems that voters all across Europe, by the way, and all the sort of populist parties have with the European Union. Never been addressed, ever. Well, I think the original sin in all of it, and this is kind of a comeuppance of it, is that, and and I don't want to totally speak for you, Moynihan, or, or particularly you, Virginia, um, but I am, uh, you know, for someone who's a libertarian, a squishy integrationist. I, yeah, I think too. the EU is, you know, the... The EU unleashed the biggest wave of privatization, as far as I know, in human history in the in the 1990s as part of uh, the integration project. So I have some good things to say about it. But the original sin about that and a lot of free trade pacts and everything else is that there isn't a lot of democratic legitimacy for it. And so if you want to maintain some kind of um, popular support, you need to, I don't know, check in with the people who yeah. are paying your bills once yeah. in a while. And this is kind of a checking in on the people paying their bills. Well, I think that there, there are two things. Um, first, in terms of the big picture of the liberal project, one of the differences between um, the Brexit vote, Brexit support, and, and the Trump vote is, is that the Brexit coalition included a lot of classical liberals, Daniel Hannon being the I don't know, maybe the most articulate, but, you know, people who are concerned about economic regulation, who are concerned about civil liberties, who are concerned about, let's face it, the difference between the continental approach to liberty traditionally and the Anglo-American approach. And so while if I had vote, I would have been on the fence. Um, it, you know, you can't, portray the Brexit vote as a strictly illiberal vote um, the way you see in certain other parts of Europe. The other thing um, is that one of the big distortions as the news crosses the Atlantic, even though you can, it is on the subject of immigration and, and how it relates to race. Um, so, as it crosses the Atlantic, it becomes this story about the English being afraid of brown people because, you know, American similar people are afraid of brown people. Well, it's not the English being afraid of brown people. It's the English being afraid of very pale Eastern Europeans. <laughs> uh, it's the Polish, you know, it's the Polish plumbers and the the Romanian motel maids. And, and actually, a lot of it is about Romanians, um, who I guess are kind of ill-behaved in many cases. I mean, you know, well, I'm sure that most of them are hardworking, good people. But, but I see lots Lots of slurs about Romanians among uh, by anti-Brexit uh, people, so that in fact it, this is not about people from the for, the former colonies, uh, the you know the Indians and Pakistanis and Caribbeans and Nigerians. This is about people from the the poorer parts of Europe. Yeah, I mean, this is it's an interesting thing because what. Um, 
has happened is this conflation. I mean, we, we love to do this in the U.S. Mm-hmm. to say that any objection to immigration, it can't be economic. It has to be motivated by racial animus. And the interesting thing about Brexit is the first thing that, that um, I saw, it, it, you know, this is, <laughs> I'm trying to find one of these headlines. Here, I'll just grab this one from Al Jazeera. Brexit increased in racist attacks after EU referendum. Now, what you will discover in this story is, of course, there's no data. This is all kind of stuff that is collected from Facebook and Twitter, et cetera. One of the big things that was that was um, reported pretty far and wide were a few of these um, attacks on a Polish society. Right. And so this is a, the racist attacks against Poles. And one would presume that if it's a racist attack against Poles because they're Polish and because of their ethnic heritage, rather than the fact that they, they just believe that the Polish plumber, as, as Virginia pointed out, are driving their wages down. This has happened in Ireland. This happened in Sweden, where the, where the labor unions got France involved. Too. In France, the Polish plumber actually, I think, came from France, that idea of the Polish plumber. And, you know, I think, by the way, the, po- the Poland, um, this Polish thing is a hoax, by the way. Oh, really? <laughs> That's my guess. I mean, look, we report this stuff and it's in literally every newspaper in the UK, all across the US, there were these laminated cards, which by the way, a lot of effort to laminate these cards printed out that say, go home, you vermin in Polish. In you know, perfectly rendered Polish. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, yeah, you that know, one, smell. One, one, it smells <laughs> a little funny. And a lot of this stuff you have to be. There was, by the way, a video that was posted far and wide today. And this, I think, is interesting because it shows you how we kind of view racism these days. I mean, this, this nobody would have cared about this 25, 30 years ago of an attack on a guy, um, a verbal attack on a guy, but two drunk yobs, as the British would call them, in Manchester on a bus telling this guy to go back to Africa. The whole thing was, was filmed. Um, the cowards on the bus did nothing because they're, they're cowards and, and horrible people. <laughs> and well, the kids, I, should, I need the to inter- kids. Inter- interject here that Michael Moynihan hates British people. No, I don't. In, in England. In England. Oh, I like them when they're here. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, how soon do you get in a fight when you land? In, in, oh, in, usually yeah. within a minute. Yeah. Uh, but, by, the way, <laughs> by the way, Manchester voted remain. Yeah, Manchester just thought I'd throw that in. The idea, this is this is the problem with this is that people are making all this political hay about this. This video in Manchester where I used to live incidentally. I lived in Manchester in 1994-95. That video could have been taken any day, any week, you know, poll or no poll, vote or no vote. This idea now that anything in in the UK go back to Africa somehow is as has to do with the European Union. This is now all being framed as the result of of um, the Brexit vote. People f- now feel liberated to to be racist. And what this does also beyond sort of defame the people who voted for Brexit for for you know normal reasons, is that it takes the normal reasons away. It's like what we talked about last week about the the Orlando shooting. When we when you shift the conversation about guns. Well, you actually end up shifting it away from from the issue of terrorism. When you say when you say normal, I suppose you mean sort of de- defensible, like res- respectable reasons. Uh, either, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, okay. like there, I'm sure there are people in the Britain First movement or the BNP movement uh-huh. who just want no immigrants in the country. Whatever. Right. I don't find that to be a respectable position. Right. But just, I mean, you know, the the millions and millions of, uh, of Brits that voted to to pull out of the European Union. And look, by the way, you can oppose immigration. You know, and it's the old Milton Friedman thing about, you know, when there's a 
pretty healthy welfare state. Sure, it's sure. what all this stuff is framed as. It's it's taxing the NHS in in the Sweden. That right. all of this is it's taxing the health services there. So that's a legitimate well, uh, concern. Well, let's let's take a step back, perhaps from from trying to get into the psyche of the voters themselves and to to determine whether or not they're racist. I read enough three hundred word um, everything you ever <laughs> wanted to know about the Euro yeah. and Brexit articles to know that they were totally racist, and that is the reason <laughs> why this was settled in the way it was. Um, but but what I wonder is if there aren't million But what I wonder if there if there aren't some defensible, potentially good outcomes, regardless of what the voters were actually looking for here, um, that might come from all of this. I mean, the, the truth is that it will take as I as I teed up in the beginning. And yeah, I was being a little sarcastic uh, because the sky is falling. We're all going to die. Well, we're going to figure this out and we'll see exactly what ends up happening. There will be some sort of arrangement brokered. Could the European could the European Union and the UK, or could the UK, anyways, um, come out of this situation a a place that has sort of better trade policy overall, that perhaps is is exercising more muscular control um, over its immigration policy, but in general is able to avoid some of the crappy stuff that comes along with being a member of the um, of the EU. Um, in terms of some of the ridiculous regulations uh, and some of the other things that are starting to bubble up to the surface. I mean, could this be good? And in another respect, um, you know, is the EU project, has it always been destined to fail uh, in certain important respects or at least to metamorph in some other way where they had to strengthen. They have to strengthen the monetary and fiscal relationships. They have to unify policy because they can't simply go on in this disjointed way they have been. And, and we saw some of this with the uh, uh, the Greek crisis um, not too long ago, uh, which they're still fighting through. So I don't know, Virginia, you, you were just there. I, I wonder if you have any uh, any perspective on that. Well, first of all, first of all, I don't think that uh, the Germans are going to want uh, once they get over their initial peak uh, to hurt trade relations with Britain, which is a major trading partner of theirs. Um, so, I think you know we are going to see a lot of you know new sort of free trade pacts, and possibly with the U.S. I mean, people have said. In, in our dreams, but maybe that the UK could join NAFTA. Huh. Uh, since NAFTA is a bad word this year, I don't see that happening. But you know, that's the kind of thinking that would could be good. Also, in terms of immigration, the the way the the UK government has sought to have a hard cap on the sheer number of immigrants, and I can't tell you off the top of my head what it is. But one result of having lots of you know open immigration from Europe is that then the people who want to come in the you know Indian engineers and the you know uh, Nigerian fashion designers or whatever um, are are limited much more and there was a lot of interest in um, during the brexit debate over there on going to what they would the, the pro-Brexit people would call a an Australian point-type system, which, by the way, I looked into and, like, I couldn't get into Australia under this system. So they're doing it right. But, <laughs> but, but a lot of tradespeople could. So, you know, it's, it's not for uh, pointy-headed intellectuals. But um, so that's that's one thing. And, and so it, a lot, you know, Donald Trump 
gave this word salad speech on the golf course after Brexit. And, and a lot of it was really stupid, like the idea that Britain wanted to have control of its monetary policy again, as if it didn't already. Um, but he did <laughs> say one thing that is absolutely true, which is that it's too soon to tell what it all means. Yes. Uh, you know, it's yeah. going to take like five years or something. Yeah, I mean, rather than having benefits, I, you know, if there are benefits from this, I mean, who can tell? But I'm, I am really hoping that there isn't a catastrophe because I'd love to revisit some of the doomsaying. I mean, the stuff that you've been hearing, and uh -huh. I'm sure you guys have all heard this, like, it is the end. I mean, I, I, Facebook, I, I have one friend in particular who I really like. He's a British guy who, who lives in a different country. And he uh, posted something uh, as I got on the train up here, and he was saying that we have to overturn this. We have, the, the, here are the ways that we can overturn the will of the people. And now, I, and today I talked to a delegate a Republican delegate who was, uh, you know, thinking about much the same thing at the Cleveland uh, Republican Convention, and is this, these are these is are, Peter Thiel. Yeah, <laughs> no, these are the these are the people that produce Trump. Um, the idea that the and, and you know I sort of agree with unfortunately the the elite sort of so called elite position here of that I th I think Brexit's probably a bad idea I think uh, uh, Donald Trump is a colossally bad idea and but to upend that stuff when so many people come out and, and vote for him uh, he can't be stopped in the primaries the Brexit people are sitting on their hands saying oh we got this one uh, it's never going to happen and then all of a sudden everyone's saying okay convention. Uh, let's invoke these EU rules. Let's stop the will of the people. And the, 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 all these populist parties are complaining, complaining, complaining about these so-called elites, what you used to, you know, in the 40s and 50s refer to the striped pants brigade in the State Department. You know, the guys went to Yale and kind of tinker with things. All of a sudden, we're sort of validating them, aren't we? I mean, the, I mean, the, the far right parties have an enormous, enormous amount of of uh, purchase and amongst voters already. Imagine if they actually try to stop uh, the the United King from actually leaving the European Union. The same thing is true at the, at the convention. I think one thing that I think that I don't think the two are comparable, really. The difference is a majority, the majority of people in Britain voted for a policy. And in the case of the convention, I mean, I don't think they're going to overthrow Trump. They won't. I they think have, they don't, nominee, they don't but, they don't but a minority of Republicans voted for Trump. And also, you know, circumstances change. And so people might decide that he is a loser and they don't want that you know, on their conscience. So I don't think the two are exactly comparable. Yes, if, if they got him, they got somebody else, Trump voters would be mad. Um, but I don't think it's the same as when you have a majority of a country voting, although people have pointed out that it's kind of weird to make such a consequential uh, vote based on a simple majority rather than, say, two-thirds. But that's well, uh, that, that, the same might be say, said about joining the EU in the first place. Right. Well. I mean, there is that. <laughs> Michael will re remember this more uh, clearly than I did. But in the 1990s, when the EU was uh, was really kind of having these fundamental arguments of like, is it deeper or is it wider, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the integration with it, there were a series of referenda uh, across the continent and and just as much there was a series of referenda that were canceled yeah. <laughs> like they went out of their way whenever they they smelled something like this happening they'd find a way to worm out of it they were terrified of popular opinion throughout the process and again that gets back to kind of the original sin idea is that if you're going to have 
you know, the fundamental question answer of who's in charge of your country? Where does your money go? Um, you kind of need to have some voter input on this. Uh, I, to your question, uh, I, I, Camille, I hate democracy with a, a white hot passion. <laughs> this is, this that's, is why true. Was, that's why I was pointing at you. By I, the way. I do. I do detest democracy. Don't yeah. you think? But Camille, how do you how do you change the fundamental like charter governing your life without having a vote? Presuming that it is not small and and non-invasive and not trampling uh, people's uh, I mean the difference between individual liberties the difference between like uh, you know a, a, yeah. a large amount of the ultimate authority for your uh, the rules that govern your country sure. happen in a different country as opposed to now shouldn't that be yeah, no, a, look, a subject I, to a vote I think I think in general like keeping a government close to the people is useful because they are easy to grab a hold of and shake and say hey I don't like that you're doing that thing uh that being said, the people themselves can reach really, really bad conclusions and have really awful perspectives on things. Um, I, I noticed when uh, the the Brexit vote came in, um, I saw our dear friend Thad Russell say something on, on Twitter about how the left uh, detests democracy when the people reach the wrong perspectives. Yes. And the truth is, I am that way, too. I detest democracy when the people reach really, really bad and awful and miserable conclusions um, about what we ought to do. And it's it's aggressive signaling and it it sort of scratches. It gets at their vanity uh, and it signals their virtue, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good policy. So for that reason, I, I sort of detest it. And actually, this this brings me to something that I, I wanted to ask you about, Virginia, because there was a there was an exchange. And this is like way back in maybe January or February of this year. Uh, but we are we're Facebook friends, and you wrote something about like cool libertarian nihilism um, and uh, yeah. sort of the the weirdos who think that there isn't much of a difference between say Trump and Hillary. Um, and I I don't know that it, for me it's cool libertarian. I didn't nihilism. use the term weirdos, but I did use the term. <laughs> yeah, you cool didn't. Libertarian cool, cool libertarian nihilism. nihilism is in quotes. No one could ever see these. This is the deficiency yeah. of podcasts. And by the way, and I can't see my air of your sar- sarcasm. Yeah. And if, yeah. if Virginia, Turn I'll call you a weirdo. So continue. <laughs> yeah. continue. Yeah. So, but I'm, I, I definitely think that there can be any number of ways to sort of rank order the candidates um, from, uh, from least bad to God awful. Uh, but I do wonder a lot, and I've talked about it on the podcast before and would love to get your take on it, like respectability politique and the fact that Hillary Clinton, for example, is uh, will give you a better speech, uh, but might not necessarily give you fundamentally different policy um, than, say, a Donald Trump, and that that ought to be meaningful. Before um, before Virginia answers this question, and uh, I, sh- I should uh, say two things, one, that uh, uh, Jesse Walker asked her and a bunch of other uh, people, including Dave Barry, uh, uh, great uh, libertarians, uh, that question, you know, who's worse between uh, Trump and Clinton in our next issue? And the answers are great. And Virginia revisited that answer, which she's going to describe in a second. And then I just want to say to Virginia, uh, Moynihan and I are totally on your side in this answer. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. You're right already. <laughs> you're okay. already right. So just start being okay. right. right now. <laughs> I have the people with me. OK, let me start by saying, you know. I, I think there's a difference between saying you can make trade-offs and decide one person is better and another person is worse and saying there's no difference. And there's a very popular thing for libertarians to say, oh, they're all the same. They're all just terrible. And, you know, um, I'm going to go live in my cave and pretend like I can, you know, have Galt's Gulch uh, on an island. <laughs> um So that's the first thing. The other thing is specifically vis-a-vis Hillary and Trump. It is 
I, I know and like a number of libertarian types who are for Trump and are actually for Trump as opposed to merely she's awful. Um, but I am just gobsmacked that intelligent people uh, can't, who take politics seriously can think that this man should have nuclear codes. He is ignorant, doesn't know sixth grade civics, if we still taught that. This is true. He is impetuous. He has no control over his mouth. He doesn't listen to anyone except possibly his daughter. He uh, is completely self-involved. Everything is about him in a, a way that, while you can say that about many politicians, is orders of magnitude more. <laughs> he has a terrible record of in business and in abusing the people he's done business with, not to mention, you know, the usual xenophobia, racism stuff, but I don't even mention that because there's enough objections without that. (laughs) (laughs) And, and meanwhile, Hillary is this utterly conventional politician. And that is one of the reasons she's so loathsome. But that also means that people know how to oppose her. They know how to fight her. They know how to, and, and she kind of plays by the rules more or less of, of the way pol- politics is conducted. And so, you know, she's not good news, but she's conventional. And yeah. I think that Con- that is, I, I wouldn't use the word respectable. That, first of all, that's, you know, one of these words that cool people use to attack uncool people but but that's not really the point it's it's more that she's a known factor that yeah. she is within the the normal uh sort of range of political yeah. discourse and, and i've actually i mean i've heard the the that particular perspective a bunch like the conventional conventionally dishonest uh within the sort of normal range um of of uh, political dishonesty but when that normal range uh includes all manner of really, really heinous activities, um, really heinous stuff, um, including and and uh, including like the death and murder of people on foreign soil. There is at least a little bit of virtue uh, in having someone who talks about these things in a way that is so disgusting, um, but is fundamentally in principle identical to uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, who when they discard constitutional safeguards and protections that people actually sit up and take notice. The fact that everyone seems to be, not everyone, uh, but that there is so much complacency when a Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton sort of defend uh, their policies, or even even a conservative, anyone, take your choice, defend their policies, which are vehemently uh, unconstitutional. Uh, I don't know. I, I, for one, think that there is something good uh, about giving people something to push back against. And that's not to say that I'm supporting Donald Trump. I'm not. Uh, to the extent I went out and cast a vote, it would definitely be for the libertarian candidates. Um, so I want to defend hypocrisy here <laughs> because it is better to pretend to follow the Constitution and not, const- and not follow it than to act like it absolutely doesn't exist and you're proud of, of, of it and you think that you should be an autocrat and, and you know, 
kill people's families and torture them. And uh, I mean, I, I also am gobsmacked that there are libertarians who think that Donald Trump is some kind of, you know, non-interventionist yeah, because yeah, I wouldn't, he, I wouldn't say you know, said bad things about George Bush. Yeah, I wouldn't because say that. I think he starts like six wars before breakfast. He just do it more by accident. Well, well, with that defense of hypocrisy, um, <laughs> I, I will let that stand unchallenged. Uh, I, I did want you to talk a little bit about your uh, your piece over at Bloomberg um, about the uh, the high speed rail. I mean, it is it is in a way uh, an obituary for this program, which is still in existence. Uh, surprisingly, what is what is going on over there, and uh, what are your thoughts on on what is likely to happen? And it is a really fantastic piece, um, yes, it is. by the way. I mean, it it's the sort of piece that reminds me of of this weird conundrum where I live in a very cosmopolitan city filled with well-educated people who are apparently cognitively uh, sufficiently capable that they can hold down a job and maintain their, their living standards and for whatever reason are constantly duped into supporting really, really awful policy um, that they suspect will just work somehow, magically, despite the fact that everything like it has failed in the past. So please give, me some, uh, give us some context for this piece and, uh, and tell folks what they can uh, encounter okay. in it. Okay, in 2008, by roughly the same margin as Brexit, <laughs> California voters, almost exactly the same, um, California voters voted to approve a $9.9 billion bond referendum to build a high-speed rail, to, to get started on a high-speed rail uh, program. And they were told that, you know, it uh, there were all these supposed safeguards built in. You know, it was gonna it was gonna get um, money from private investors. It wouldn't need ongoing operational subsidies. It would charge low fares. It would get all these riders. You know, it was a beautiful musical. Um, even back then, if you happened to hang out with Reason Foundation people, you knew that this was cloud cuckoo land, that in order to make these numbers, it was going to have to be like the great, most popular, most crowded, um, fast train in the world, much more than the Japanese and French uh, trains, the high-speed rail lines that are the comparison. Well, surprise, surprise, eight years later, it's the construction cost estimates more than doubled despite that they've cut the routes. The, they started with this famous train to nowhere in the middle of the Central Valley. It's running four years behind. It hasn't gotten all the land. The predicted prices have gone up. And even the money that was supposed to, the new money that was supposed to cover this, which is supposed to come from the cap and trade auctions of the carbon permits, that's not materializing because nobody's buying these permits and, and no so, and so the responsible thing interested is, and so the responsible thing has been done and this this program has been has been canceled it's over uh yeah right no and in fact uh, the what inspired me to write the piece is a los angeles times beat reporter named ralph vardabedian who does fantastic work on this subject uh reported that when a french uh, rather sorry spanish construction company submitted a bid they included this uh Warning: More than likely, the California high-speed rail will require large government subsidies for years to come. And around the world, most high-speed rail supporters would admit to that. I mean, they would just say it's worth it. But the California High-Speed Rail Authority 
steadfastly maintains that it will never need operating subsidies. And lo and behold, this warning disappeared from the version that was uh, that was on the state's website. And you know, Vardabedian got it through a, a public documents request. Well, Skype, Skype is getting the uh, the better of us uh, at this point. Uh, um, but uh, but I I did get the uh, the turn there. Um, we don't know what will happen. Perhaps it will become the big dig. Uh, maybe just a, a 50 mile, uh, $500 per passenger, uh, super fun ride uh, down the street. Or, or it could be a, rather than the big dig. It could, my hope is it will be the superconducting super collider, which is a big hole in the ground in Texas where they pulled the plug instead of continuing to put money down it. Uh, thank you so much, Virginia, for, uh, for hanging out with us, for chatting with us, for, for instructing me. And uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I can't be an apt pupil and learn. Uh, We're trying, but but hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thanks. Thank you, Virginia. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Boom. I wanted to uh, to just point out um, that uh, that piece, which is great, uh, references an LA Times editorial from 2008, in which they said. the projection who would endorsed this uh, thing. The political class totally wanted the high speed rail in California. Um, they uh, this direct quote: "The projections by the measure's opponents, led by the Libertarian Reason Foundation in Los Angeles, are much more persuasive than <laughs> yeah. the backers." They said yeah. this, yeah. but you know what? Uh, nonetheless, we quote: "Still think voters should give in to the measure's gleaming promise." Mm. Uh, partly uh, because promise. weaning travelers from gas-powered, road-choking cars is critical to the state's health and competitiveness. So they are completely immune to reason. Small R, uh, in addition to big R, here. Three years later. They have an editorial, uh, and I swear to God, this is in the subhead, which is, yes, the price tag has tripled, and its completion date is 13 years later, but it's still a gamble worth taking. Yeah. 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 yeah, I imagine. I, I, imagine, I want to hear imagine, more about how the Democrats are the party of science. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Would you imagine doing that? Um, someone saying that about an addition, a, a deck that they're going to put on their house. Somebody yeah. came over and said, "Remember that estimate I gave you? It's going to be three times that, and it's going to take 15 times as long, and it might not even work." Like, you know what? I think this is a gamble worth taking. Back yeah. during, I mean, go, back during, yeah, the, people uh, love people love taking gamble with uh, gambles with other people's money. In uh, 2009, when uh, when uh, L.A. Uh, or in California was going through. Uh, Fiscal crisis, and remember all these stories about the austerities cutting everything to the bone and all this kind of stuff. There was a finger wagging LA Times editorial about how, you know, you know, this is all the voters' fault, obviously because of Proposition 13 cutting property taxes, which the liberal class thinks is the original sin of all California policy. But they're like, also, and you just voted for every single bond measure, you know, uh, and no wonder that we're so much in debt. And I was like, huh, I used to work at the LA Times editorial board. I remember when we, bond measures would come up, we would ind- endorse them every time, and I'd be the only guy saying no, or one of the only guys saying no. I went back and looked at the la- the previous twenty two bond measures that were editorialized on, and they had supported twenty mm. of them. That is, it's it's a bond measure. Of course, we should buy it, sure. uh, pay for it. Why not? I, I wonder about uh, risks worth ta- worth taking in in other areas, uh, perhaps some areas that are our favorite of uh, conservatives, hawkish conservatives. Uh, like uh, Benghazi, Libya, foreign mm. policy stuff. That was a hard turn. Yeah, it was a little it was a hard, hard turn. I made it, though. Yeah. I think we're safe. <laughs> uh, but the uh, Benghazi uh, Select Committee uh, has uh, finally concluded their report after, what, two long years, tons and tons of money. Um, and uh, I have not yet read the report. 
Mm. It's, eight, at it's 800 pages. So. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't yeah, looked at the yeah. executive summary. What I did look at were the headlines, and the New York Times says House Benghazi report finds no new evidence of wrongdoing. Uh, Hillary Clinton says it's time to move on. And Steve Hayes, uh, full disclosure, my partner Dan Hayes is Steve Hayes' younger brother, uh, at the Weekly Standard says the Benghazi lie in black and white. He, mm-hmm. uh, he is chronicling the, the, the inconsistent timeline uh, of statements from the Clinton, from Clinton, then Secretary of State Clinton and Barack Obama uh, and the administration's obfuscation of the truth uh, when it comes to Benghazi. It is not clear who's won this round. Well, politically, it's clear. Politically, it's clear. This is a dead issue Hillary Clinton won because they are able to portray any kind of uh, look at her governing record as a political scandal. And so therefore, it's covered as a campaign issue. Yeah. And when you cover it as a campaign issue, what matters is not what she says. Think about her hearings. Remember the 11-hour testimony from last September or October, whenever it was? What difference does it make? Uh, and it wasn't that one. It was the, it was the, this is the most uh, recent one. Uh, a testimony during which she said, among many other things, that this these attacks were sparked by the Innocence of Muslims YouTube video in the right. same way that the Charlie Hebdo uh, attack was sparked by the cartoonists. Yeah. Wow. She said that. Wow. And that wow. was not a headline anywhere except in Reason and except in maybe Steve Hayes and other people who look at it. But it was all treated at that moment as she nailed it. She knocked it out of the park. 11 would've, hours of testimony. Would have test- been a headline if Donald Trump had said it. Just saying. <laughs> uh, 11 hours of testimony. Uh, you know, she she did it well as a political story. But uh, I'm, I'm much more in camp uh, Steve Hayes on this. Uh, it is true that there's probably not a whole lot of new news in this. I've been reading Section 2 to a great length because that's what is focusing on the the way that the YouTube video was uh, – it came about as being something for the administration to talk about. It's a very good TikTok on that. And one of the things that jumps out at, in it is that on 7.30 in the evening on September 11th, 2011, right, the 10-year anniversary, so when they still didn't know that Chris Stevens was anything but missing, when two of the other guys were still alive, they convened a special meeting at the White House, including uh, Hillary Clinton, teleconference, national security, senior muckety-mucks. And of the 10 action items in that meeting that came way out of that meeting, five had to do with the Innocence of Muslims video, right? including like, we need to pressure Google and YouTube to take it down and these kinds of things. 20, 2012, by the way. 2012, sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, in the moment, at that moment, there had not been a single person on the ground in Libya to make any comment about any connection with this video. Right. So, uh, and, and to me, like the, the scandal here is in plain sight. It is that Hillary Clinton and the State Department and Barack Obama and senior people in, in government honestly, truly believed that there was a connection here. They honestly, truly wanted to protect uh, the other embassies because it did start uh, in Cairo and other places. Uh, there were much less lethal uh, kind of mobs getting angry up and, and citing this cartoon. In their minds, they thought we will be safer if we make sure that in every single one of our discussions about the ransacking in Benghazi and other things that are happening, we will be safer. Our diplomats will be safer if we tell them we had nothing to do with this video. So, so it wasn't against opportunistic. You're, you're saying that there was, in fact, that, that they believed at least that there was, in fact, a connection between this video and the attacks on the embassy. Or that they they believed that that they were protecting other embassies and other diplomatic right. at first right. uh, from possible uh, uh, from possible violence, because in their heart of hearts, they believe that 
a a, hard, a huge swath of Muslims are ready to just blow up as soon as Terry Jones, you know, throws a Quran on the toilet in Florida. Um, that they're that that's just going that that's going to cause it. In their heart of hearts, they believe that the expression causes the violence. Mm. That is a that is a, a a fundamental belief which is wrong. It's just wrong. Violence is the the people who do the violence is the one. I mean, the spark metaphor doesn't sure. work uh, at all. Um, so it is what they they so their instinct at that moment was censorship rather uh, rather than making a forthright declaration that look if you're going to use that as an excuse, you go straight to hell. That's not an excuse. Um, yeah. That's not the way they they did it. They conflated it, and then after more information started coming from the ground. Uh, uh, corroborating that this was a well-planned attack, or at least a planned attack with a lot of people using weapons and and things like that, they just doubled down. Uh, Hmm. And for the next two weeks, talked about this uh, in terms of the United States, of course, condemns uh, the terrible vitriolic things said about Islam. We should, you know, and so it's it is the scandal remains um, and it's a part and parcel with Hillary Clinton's career uh, as being anti-free speech. And uh, and it is it is awful. And it's not necessarily how Republicans portray it, however. Yeah, it's, nobody cares. That's the takeaway from this. Um, this 800 word, uh, 800 page phone book of a report will drop. People are going to extract a few things from it here and there. There's going to be a few leaks here and there, like the great one that I discovered that uh, Sidney Blumenthal, the yeah. repulsive Sidney Blumenthal, is being paid $200,000 a year by David Brock in Media Matters. It's like a part-time. consultations or whatever. This is how nice. DC works, by the way, That's friends. Great. People get these sorts of gigs, and they get big, big paydays for doing, you know, are we, we, do we have an explicit rating for the show already? Uh, can I yes, say? Yes. Yes. Okay. For, they, there may, get, there they may get, be profanity. They they get two hundred thousand dollars a year for doing fuck all, and that's that's <laughs> how DC works. The bigger issue here about Republicans is that there is stuff in this report that's actually you know as you say the innocence of Muslims uh, blame game, which you know they went directly to Google, and I had actually talked to somebody at Google. I was doing a story about this at the time. Um, and they were responsive and they interface with the State Department because the Google is has their own State Department. And this stuff got out there. It's a forgotten about piece of the story, by and large. I mean, most people aren't talking about this at all. Uh, the Republicans overplayed their hand in such a catastrophic fashion here. This idea that people would be upset about the timeline, about about Benghazi and Benghazi is tied to Hillary and Hillary is going to be the nominee. OK, right. Great. Here's something that I want to explain to the um, dopey, oafish Republicans who are pushing this this narrative. This thing should have been investigated. Two people died. It was an absolute tragedy. Three. Four. Uh, three. Uh, three. Four. Was it four? Four. I, I meant uh, two, three, Stevens. Four. Four? Yes. Oh, okay. I apologize. That was four. See, let's see how much it's penetrated my mind at this point. I, unfortunately, um, am following too much of the political machinations here, and I'm losing the actual story of this. But the thing that's... that's um, uh, Republicans are, are are too stupid to to learn is that never ever ever try to push a story like this and have it stick to the candidate and have it be the big one. That's what they're trying here. They're trying to be the big one. If it relies on a timeline, timelines aren't good. The the who knew what and when they knew it about Watergate was too confusing for anyone at the time. You ask anyone contemporaneously what was going on. Like, I don't know who Eagle Bud Crow is. I don't know who all this stuff is. I know when Nixon resigned and there were some tapes. In the tapes, he was saying some bad things and there's some cover-up going on. The TikTok here on this Benghazi stuff 
is interesting if you've been reading about it. There are some interesting elements. I have not paid attention to this in, 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 too closely. I thought this is a great piece, a uh, bit for Camille. I you noticed that the uh, the troops had never arrived. The people who did arrive and discharge their weapons were former Qaddafi soldiers. Ouch. And there were members of this. I heard this this morning yeah, on NPR. The, the overthrown regime. The overthrown regime. And, I, you yeah. know, this, the, 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 the shock troops of, uh, of Qaddafi apparently intervened. I heard that this morning on, Which, I think it was on NPR. But, like, these little elements are interesting. But, I mean, I just mean this in a, in a, in a political way, in a nakedly political way. It just is not going to resonate. Um, and so if... Donald Trump is up there whining about Vince Foster and Benghazi, and he's uh, <laughs> down 12 points in, in polls right now. He's going to probably go down to 15. Michael uh, Michael Cohen, who is Donald Trump's lawyer, um, uh, tweeted out uh, an image of Hillary Clinton like looking like the devil or whatever, and then on it said, you know, she murdered the uh, troops in yeah. Benghazi. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's. By the way, the exact. And I've seen this in in Twitter profiles. The crazy people on Twitter always have the Benghazi thing. Right. Um, I don't know why that just lines up that way. Um, but that that blaming Hillary for this is blaming uh, the cartoonists for their own deaths. It's blaming somebody else, but the Trigger Man from who's uh, uh, saying we avenge the prophet, which everybody did after the Charlie Hebdo thing. And that's just in the front of my mind because you just mentioned Hebdo. Right. The I same mean, we, thing. We saw conserv- some of this in Orlando too. Yeah. Cons- I mean, I mean, blaming blaming gunmakers, blaming the guns, blaming everybody. But the killer and conservatives do this uh, in Benghazi and say, you have blood on your hands, Hillary Clinton, if that everything they say is true about Hillary Clinton and her response to Benghazi. OK, there's there's culpability. But this idea that you are the one who pulled the trigger, which I've seen more than once, and it's not just some fantasy, is is uh, really distressing how stupid. Yeah, people there, there is at least one uh, way to look at this that is not too abstract, uh, that does, in fact, place culpability in the right place. And that's everyone who was in favor of this obviously failed uh, Libyan intervention is in fact culpable. Like it didn't work out particularly well. And the conservatives who are very critical of Hillary Clinton now and, and trying rather urgently to, to prove that she is simply unpatriotic and, and didn't want these people to live or survive and that they are evil, uh, that she is evil uh, and, and, perhaps even lent aid and comfort to uh, to these insurgents in some way, shape, or form. I don't know what the narrative is, but this true scandal is that policy and the fact that Hillary Clinton still stands by it and she still said, thinks that the fundamental issue there was the failing of the new Libyan government that didn't uh, offer enough opportunities for us to what yeah. send in additional troops and besides saying uh, it's just besides saying at that hearing that Charlie Hebdo cartoonists sparked their own murder, which is just outrageous on every possible human level. Um, she said, and she has repeated this, that the intervention in Libya was quote this is verbatim yeah. smart power at its best. Yeah, you know, I mean, you want, this is great. This is the email, and in in all this, is a really interesting thing by by the way about Judicial Watch that yeah. muckraking Larry uh, Larry Clayman group uh, Clayman that, that uh, is like you know subpoenaing people to depositions, giving depositions. They were crazy. there in the Whitewater. Days. Yeah, I mean, look, they attacked the Bush administration too. They've been yes, actually they pretty pretty consistent, uh, but um, you know, it wasn't uh, a Judicial Watch. But this is the email that came out from Sidney Blumenthal that I had to had to pull up about the success of Libya success. Uh, this is before um, the the, the uh, killing of Ambassador Stevens. This is from uh, Sid Blumenthal. This is a historic moment. You will be credited for realizing it. When Gaddafi is finally removed, 
You should, of course, make a public statement before the cameras wherever you are, even in the driveway of your vacation house. You must go on camera. You must establish yourself in the historical record at this moment. That is what Sid Blumenthal yeah. emailed to Hillary Clinton. Um, look, I w- had this desperate desire for for um, uh, Muammar Gaddafi to be overthrown because uh, he was a hideous, monstrous leader. We learned our lesson uh, about hideous, monstrous leaders in Iraq. Um, I had been in Libya prior to the revolution um, with some journalists. <laughs> And, you know, I remembered the LaBelle uh, discotheque bombing. I remembered the Armalite rifles and the Semtech that were supplied to the IRA. I mean, not Armalites, but the Semtech. And I remembered all of the airlines that were blown up from Lockerbie and to the, the French plane over Chad. Bad guy. Okay, so where are we now? This instinct is finally, I've finally gotten rid of this instinct. The hatred that I had for Gaddafi and what he had done to that country, mm-hmm. um, previously a beautiful, fantastic country, um, is now I look at the the sort of moonscape yeah. of Derna and of Sirte and of Benghazi and of Tripoli and say, OK, well, this is a guy who gave up his nuclear weapons to, to program to George W. Bush. He did in 2004. Mm-hmm. Gave it up. When I was there, he was he was um, you know trying to make the show to the West of we have rehabbed jihadists from the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, and I went and met these. They had not been rehabbed. They had a gun to their neck when they were talking to us. Basically, people writing down, standing behind us, writing you know their answers to make sure that they they could be punished if they gave the wrong ones. It was all a show, but it was a show in our direction. And I want to give Gaddafi no credit for that because he deserves no credit. And he was a monstrous leader, but he was a monstrous leader trying to impress us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the prediction of ISIS, had any of us made this prediction, by the way, I probably would have been met with some uh, pretty, pretty withering glances of like, you think if you liberate these people that this is what Muslims will become? The throat slitting, slick production values of throwing gay people off building, that's a horrible thing. And enough people to actually staff a caliphate, a fake, small, but 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 sort of pernicious caliphate, in which the Iraqi army just kicked them out of Fallujah and it took how long? Yeah. And now they're going on to Mosul and that'll take how long? This is not a small force. And had, I think, we, we had anticipated that, because one thing I will say in defense of the people who you know, supported the mm-hmm. war in Iraq and maybe even Libya, and maybe even one intervention in Syria. The one thing I will say in support, and it's wrong, but, you know, these are people, and a long time ago, myself, I was amongst them, who thought that the Middle East um, was full of people that were like me and like you. It is anti-racism at its finest. <laughs> that, that you know, to say that these people aren't deserving of democracy, they don't want democracy, they're not capable of democracy, to say that to people at a certain time, at a certain place, and in a certain tone would get that withering look to say that, you know, I think these people are just like, you know, my friends in, you know, Kalamazoo is idiotic, we found out later. And but the motivations, I would say, were, you know, weren't terrible. The idea that it was just about bombing brown people, I think it was I think it, for a lot of people it was actually the opposite. Right. I, I, I think. I, I follow I certainly follow that last that last point. I mean, there were, in fact, people, however, who perhaps did not give specific prognostications about there will be an organization called ISIS. Sure. Um, I mean, you, you really would have had to be getting into some uh, Jer- Jeremiah level prophecies <laughs> yeah. to, to, no, to, give, to by, give that sort of. But specific by then detail. we were saying 
dude, you don't have a plan. It's obvious. We've done sure. this recently. And yeah. when you don't have a plan, and, and, sure. it and when sucks. You say, and when you say by then, you mean shortly after George W. Bush uh, landed on an aircraft carrier with a banner that said mission accomplished. I mean, we really can in very serious ways sort of trace things back that far. And I, I don't know. I'm, when, when Sometimes when you do mm-hmm. like your stream of consciousness uh, mm-hmm. stuff and you're responding to a question like that, like the, the region is a mess and has been a mess for sure. a very long time. Yeah. The various factors that come into play when a, a, an organization like ISIS arises out of the rubble of Syria and Iraq mm-hmm. and the various other related regions that have seen fighting uh, in, in the last uh, decade. Um, I don't know that you can chalk that up to the people as opposed to a massive power vacuum and I, any number of that's right. really awful and comp- high, incredibly complicated um, and interwoven factors that actually create disgusting and disturbing regions like this. And the fact of the matter is, I don't know that that most of the citizens of this particular part of the world um, are are supportive of these governments. In fact, that my 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 perception is that they aren't. Um, that yeah. they are forced to sure, comply sure. with things. And, no, and, and, I wa- and I wanna concede, given sufficient yeah, time. Yeah. That that could be. I want to concede the vacuum thing because it's uh, you know, and and <laughs> as you point out, they can I can get a little discursive sometimes about yeah. this stuff. But I think that that um, you're right, and and it's also always important to point out that the war in Syria, the ISIS war in Syria, is an imperialist war. It is a war of imperialism from people all over yes. the world yes. invading and, and, and going into another country in the way that the United States did, uh-huh. but with worse intentions, I totally. should say. Totally. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's the Spanish Civil War for psychopaths yes. of people <laughs> going forever for, to come to, to Syria. I mean, yeah. so many of these people are from the UK, et cetera. Um, you know what I think the thing is, actually, is that I think Americans were pretty slow, and I'll admit this myself, pretty slow to assimilate the lessons of Iraq mm-hmm. right away, and, and, and for a couple of reasons. I think that by 9-11, this, what made people like Paul Berman interesting after 9-11 is he wrote a book called Terror and Liberalism, and it was about Saeed Qutub and the sort of genesis of Islamist thought, the same thing with The Looming Tower, um, books like this. We wanted to understand this stuff because our perception of terror in the Middle East was one of secular terror. I mean, for all of, you know, I mean, the the, the PFLP, George Habash, these people are blowing things up all over Europe, all over the Middle East, training guerrillas. They were Marxists, right? I mean, the same thing, the PLO, essentially a Marxist organization. Every one of these countries had some sort of, you know, Abu Nidal, essentially a Marxist. Later, I mean, Saddam Hussein, look at Ba'athism was essentially a socialist idea. And then ultimately in the 90s, he starts to make Qurans in his own blood. He starts building mosques in the middle of the country named after himself. And it takes an Islamist turn that we didn't quite understand. So I think that I think I think a lot of people didn't understand. The experts certainly should have. I I mean, I wasn't one of them. But this idea, you know, in Iraq is uh, we look back at it now and say, geez, everybody's making arguments about Germany and Japan. We pacified Germany. We pacified Japan. Why couldn't we do the same thing in Iraq? The, the we thing... misunderstood this in a way that was that was so uh-huh. catastrophic. I think, and and it took so long to realize what the kind of Islamist idea was. And to Camille's point, and I think it's a good one, and I should have made it uh, earlier, is that it is the power vacuum that is the important thing because. 
the people that fill that power vacuum aren't people that hold the passport of that country where the power yes. vacuum is. Yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, is something we should have thought about. Our, our friend Afga- Michael Weiss in Afghanistan. Michael Weiss pointed to the fact that there were there were secular Baathists who were joining forces with, with ISIS, ISIS. Yes, and, and in going on this crusade. Yes, absolutely. They were non-religious people. Yeah, the yeah. The, but, the comparison that drove me nuts as someone who lived in Central Europe during the 1990s was the Central Europe comparison yeah. that that we're going to be great, greeted with uh, with uh, rose. There's there was explicit velvet revolution comparisons to Iraq, um, and at some point, yeah, ha- nation states mattered. Having you know having the map, having the people who live in a country more or less think that that map is okay. Yeah, that this collection of people. The border around it makes sense. Um, that is a, a, a totally crucial precondition. I mean, for crying out loud, I was decrying people uh, talking about the breakup of Czechoslovakia, but there was one fear about all of that, which was that there's 500,000 ethnic Hungarians who live in Slovakia, and Slovakia was an unsteady country, and Hungary has this unsettled feeling about the Treaty of Triana from 100 years ago, and are they going to be calling for a greater Hungary, sure. and is there going to be a border dispute? It yeah. was a real thing, and actually... NATO integration is what what simmered that dispute down. They had to, as a precondition, say, we're cool the borders. Um, but that was just a very small thing. We saw the one place where those questions weren't really settled. Like, do these maps make sense? Do these cultures hang together? What about these language? That place yeah. was Yugoslavia, and it was a bloodbath. Uh, so to have, I mean, the Middle East is essentially a whole mess of Yugoslavia's, right? You have colonial overlays. You have different uh, uh, tribal and religious affiliations. And it wasn't settled. And to think that there can be a similar pl- uh, reaction in Central Europe, which is the place where nation state are, that's where the concept came up, uh, more or less, was in Central Europe, um, was uh, folly. Um, we should hard pivot and get out of here. Hard pivot to uh, some, uh, yeah. some idiot wrote yeah, this. Take this because you have your some iPad. Some idiot wrote this. I assume that's, I assume yeah, yeah. that's uh, show related. I'm, pre- I'm, pre- I'm preparing. But some idiot wrote I'm this. Is, um, I'm going to, because Camille is presenting it this week, yeah. I will do oh. the intro. Are you going to tee me up? I'm going to tee you up yeah. because I want to make, you know, we, we often do this thing as somebody that wrote this and we uh, change the verb. And this one we're going to do. <laughs> some idiot said this. And but he probably a, wrote it before. He might have written it before. Which is, somebody, which is Some idiot wrote and then said, this on television. Camille, who's the idiot and what did he say? Well, it's this kid named Jesse Williams who is on a television show by the name of Grey's Anatomy, which I, I didn't know was still on the air, but good for him. That's great. Uh, he was at the BET Awards on Sunday, which I believe aired live, but I sure as hell didn't watch them live because like any other right-thinking person, I was watching Game of Thrones. Um, but uh, I did hear about this the next day when Again, a lot of my friends uh, online, and and I don't know, maybe I won't be friends with you anymore, uh, were going nuts uh, over this speech that Jesse Williams gave uh, about five minutes after he got the humanitarian uh, award at the Black Entertainment Television uh, Awards. Um, And the five-minute speech was awful. I don't know that I can find any redeeming quality in this speech at all. But everyone loved it. it everyone loved it. And everyone, and everyone loved it because it played to all of the the awful, baseless, often banal, but but very often flagrantly false, um, essential precepts of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and that's not to say that we don't care about police. Uh, uh, needless police violence, excessive uses of of force that result in the death of people. But the sort of things that I'm concerned about 
uh, are some of his biggest applause lines. Um, and and it's, it's stuff like this. Uh, what we've been doing is we're looking at the data. And we know that the police somehow managed to de-escalate, disarm, and not kill white people every day. So what's going to happen is we are going to have equal rights and justice in our country or we will restructure their function and ours. That, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. But what he's suggesting... I totally want to restructure anyone, my function. For anyone... Yeah. And I mean, this was a huge applause line. For anyone who's actually paying attention, what he's suggesting is that white people aren't, aren't killed by the police under any circumstance. I mean, that just doesn't happen to them every day the way it does for black people. Well, actually, no. I mean, as a matter of fact... Since you're looking at the data, the limited data that is admittedly available, more white people are killed in those sort of circumstances than black people as an absolute number. Now, as a percentage of the population, that might be different. But you said you want to look at the data and you want to deal with facts. Um, then he goes on to, to, to string together a number of names that are associated with police tragedies, Tamir Rice and Sandra Bland, two completely different circumstances in entirely different contexts. But again, all part of this one narrative, this narrative that black people are perpetually set upon and taken advantage of. I mean, by everyone elsewhere. Tamir Rice was shot. Uh-huh. Killed while playing with a toy gun. Tragedy. Terrible. Awful. Terrible. Terrible. Sandra Bland was pulled over and treated really badly, but then committed suicide. Committed right. suicide. Right. Yeah. Except, except for the fact that paranoia. There are, but there are plenty cameras. of conspiracy theories about her having been murdered. Yeah. In her prison cell. Coming, I think coming from people like but, Deray McKesson. No, but there are like cameras. I mean, I, I, right? yeah, facts don't matter. matter. Facts, facts, facts don't matter. matter. In the same way the that, that the white people that white people aren't being killed by the police ever. Apparently, or at least not every day, uh, the way black people are. The facts I, don't, I totally the believe facts that don't she was killed there. until there was but, videotaped. But for me, the worst, the <laughs> totally. worst part, the worst part of all of it um, is is the casual way. And I've I've talked about this before, but it really is repugnant. The casual way that Jesse Williams and people of his ilk step what do you in mean by his ilk of his ilk i mean social justice social justice crusaders who think it's cool to step into the shackles of former slaves uh, or of long dead slaves um to step into the 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 lines that civil rights activists marched in when they were being attacked by dogs uh when they were having fire hoses turned on them and use the collective we us our struggle to, to generalize in a room full of wealthy, powerful black actors and musicians and talk about how they're not free, how things haven't changed, how they haven't improved. It is despicable. It's awful. And it is so dysfunctional as to be just completely astonishing to me that thoughtful, educated people, some of my very good friends, like hear claptrap like this uh, and think that it is enlightened wisdom, um, manna from heaven. I can't wait. And until, it just isn't. I can't wait till we have videos of when we do this because you could see like uh, all the tendons flaring <laughs> in Camille's heavily muscled you torso. Know, I, I have to say that I don't really care if this is true because I don't trust the website called Celebrities Money. Um, <laughs> but I do like that Celebrities Money 
um, do, uh, extrapolating from his yearly salary as an actor, uh, says that Jesse Williams has uh, broken free of his shackles long enough to accumulate a net worth of $145 million. Lord oh! have mercy. Um, and uh, I just want to say that that's the guy that, uh, you know, has, has all the problems Beautiful in the world. Beautiful eyes. Who is piercing. Blue, blue eye, piercing, green-eyed, uh, handsome man who is worth, uh, according to a unreliable website, $145 million. If we knocked 100 off of that, I still don't feel bad for him, $45 million. I don't know, man. It's We're in, we're in, a, we're in a time in history where... There is a sweepstakes to uh, the sort of oppression sweepstakes to 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 get uh, to be poorly treated. It to is, say that I am so poorly, I'm badly off. It allows you to make these these tub thumping speeches at award ceremonies full of millionaires, which is the most incongruous. I, you know, John Lennon very famously played for the Queen. And he says, you know, when there's a, there's a rich people. Do you remember that? You yeah, know, yeah. those of you in the front row stamp your feet, and those of you up back shake rattle, rattle, your, your, rattle your jewelry. And this is there's no stamping your feet. This is all rattle your jewelry. And these are all people rattling their jewelry and and, and congratulating themselves about things they know no, nothing about. And these things go viral, as Camille said, because they they are fact free, regardless of facts. It is the tone. It is the temperament. It is the cadence. Yeah. And this one, which is particular, it's, and a, it has church, a, it's a church it's service. A, it's the churchy style, Tanahisi style, like you know, overwrought, and everyone it, that that thing doesn't mean anything in large sections of it, but yet people were you know uh, standing on the tabletops, and within seconds it was it was uh, clogging my uh, Facebook feed of people from um, suburban Boston. So I, I don't know what any of this means yeah. at this point. I mean, we are we are in a nightmare of signaling. It's so. it's not just okay to ridicule these people. It is wholly appropriate. Um, and I, I want quiet. you. I want you to do it. You guys, Please. you guys have anger. Issues, wherever, man. wherever you have the opportunity, because it's the right thing to do. No, I, I think we have the moral high ground here. I don't. I don't pretend to have taken lashes for Kunta Kinte. I don't. I don't do that. He's a real Who's person. Not a real, uh, by the way, he's not a real person. By the way, his name was LeVar Burton. Thank you very much. <laughs> and he I'm, was on, reading, and he was on reading Rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> you, can't, you can't see this at home, uh, dear listeners, but he's wearing the LeVar Burton shirt today. Um, Matt, you went someplace. There was a fire. There were people doing drugs. Yeah, just guns. a parting shout, shot. I want to say a shout out to our friends at Porkfest. My first time I went. The Porcupine Festival is the Free State Project. They have this every year up in New Hampshire. A bunch of hippies in the woods with guns, smoking all the pot. Uh, kids running around lighting fires. It's great. Oh, um, did you smoke some weed? I was offered plenty, but uh, as we all know, that's not a good idea for for the health and safety of. Okay, mankind. so you're just lying to your listeners. Why would you do that? This, you're breaking the bond of trust, Matt. No, I establish I, it. No, I, I I had to get up at five in the morning and drive to Boston, which is a disgusting city, as you well know. Oh my god! Uh, to fly out to Los Angeles. So. All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna start this because it's at the tail end of the podcast, and I don't think anyone will listen to it. We're breaking land say, speed. We're breaking land speed. Record. I want to say that you know, um, not long ago, I ate mushrooms, and I haven't eaten mushrooms in a long time. So I'm just gonna tell everyone that in the podcast. And you know what? It was super fun. Yeah. It was like I'm an old man. Man, but it was it was it was a good time. So I think you should. How old admit, are you, Michael? I, you know, I'm I just, <laughs> 20, 27, I don't know, 27, 28, yeah. something around that. I'm a Virgo. That's what I, I know that. Yeah. But uh-huh. that stays the same no matter how wrinkly you get. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah no, forty-one year old men should not be doing mushrooms. But. Well, I don't know what we're going to do next week. Mushrooms. Um, mushrooms. I am. Uh, we, we may do mushrooms, but I'm definitely going on vacation, so we still have to figure this out. Uh, until then, however, uh, thank you for joining us. As always. And tell us how much you don't want us to go on vacation. Yeah, I'm going on vacation. You can't stop me. Uh, for, for Michael Moynihan for and me. Matt Welch, oh, I'm uh, Camille Foster. Oh, thanks, Camille. Good night and good luck. 